Thanks, music team. That was fantastic, as always. Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you all out this morning. Lovely winter Sunday. And uh, when it comes to grace, actually, I need some grace from Rick because I had it in my phone, my little thing that I'm addicted to because it's the only thing that makes me remember anything, that I was to go to his celebration yesterday. I was supposed to be there. And, it, and my phone vibrated in my pocket of my snowmobile suit while I was in the middle of nowhere, somewhere between here and Oxbow or the fire hall or whatever it's called out there. So I blame Mark Lester as to why I wasn't there. We were supposed to leave at 12. I could not imagine we would be out snowmobiling past 3 o'clock. If Mark tells you you're going for a certain length of time, just double it. I felt, like I, was, I felt like I was with Skipper and Gilligan on the minnow, you know, the, the three-hour tour. The television season could still be running. Anyway, we did get back, and I apologize that I was not there. My, my brain didn't tell me till it was too late. Um, we're looking at uh, 1 Corinthians and uh, working through the book, and we're going to pick up the pace. We've covered the first two verses in the last two weeks, so, you know, we'll pick up the pace a little bit. Uh, But we started out looking, first of all, I wanted to open it up by looking at the Apostle Paul and who he was. It was important as a church that we understand why do we listen to the Apostle Paul and why did this guy write half of the New Testament? And we talked about his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, how his life was transformed from one who oppressed the church and hated everything that Christianity stood for to one who was a champion, an apostle called specifically by Jesus to be an apostle to the Gentiles, which is us for the most part, and um, his training by the Holy Spirit, that he spoke the wisdom of God, and and by the Holy Spirit, that his writing was actually considered scripture by the other disciples and apostles, even in his own lifetime, and that he was the fulfillment in part, the other parts of it, but he was in part the fulfillment of the promise that Jesus, Jesus gave his disciples that he said when he was leaving them near the end of his ministry that there was much more that he wanted to teach them but that he was leaving and he would send a helper. He would send the Holy Spirit to teach them in truth all the things that he couldn't teach them in the time that he had. And then we did a a review just of Corinth and the church that he planted there in one specific city on his missionary journeys. The Apostle Paul planted a church in a city called Corinth, and it was a very rough port city, over half a million people, and it was filled with every kind of culture, every philosophy, every religion that you can imagine. There were temples Uh, to Aphrodite and Apollos. There were other temples besides those. Those are the ones it was known for. And idols and philosophies and Gnosticism and agnosticism and everything you could imagine was sort of a melting pot in that city. And the city name itself literally became a verb in Greek. To Corinthianize was to commit adultery. And so this is a city that you can think of just like Las Vegas, right? It became a noun. It became a verb. It became part of the vocabulary. To go to Corinth or to Corinthianize was essentially to be impure. And so it was, it was, like I say, it was basically Las Vegas with waterfront. And so this church that Paul planted, you could imagine, understandably began to struggle after Paul left. So he was there for a year and a half, and he committed himself to preaching the gospel and Christ crucified. And he founded a, a church there that was strong. But seven or eight years later now, they've begun to struggle. They've begun to falter. And the foundation that Paul laid of Jesus as the foundation 
was beginning to crack and it was beginning to erode away. And the church had a rather shaky understanding now of ethics and morals. Their relationships with each other were strained and they were broken into different factions of following different people. And their application of the gospel to their lives was inconsistent. They didn't really understand the spiritual gifts and how they were to be used or, or uh, how to treat people with them. Um, they were lacking, or sorry, they were taking each other to court, like in the public. It got to the point where they were suing each other in court, and, you know, and people were looking and saying, isn't the church about love? And you guys are like taking each other to court. And so it was just becoming a mess, and they were slandering the name of Paul, saying that he wasn't a true apostle and that he wasn't tre- preaching the proper gospel. It was the perfect church to find fault with. It was the perfect church to leave. The last thing you would think of a church like that is that it was rich that it was blessed. And rich in the amazing way that Paul describes that this church is rich. This is the last thing you would think that Paul would start saying. Let's pray before we look into 1 Corinthians 4 to 9. Father God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the riches that are poured out on all of your church everywhere. And Father, I would pray as we look into these first this first paragraph of Paul's letter, um, that we would understand who he is, his heart for the people, what our heart should be for your church. And just uh, maybe open our eyes, Lord, if they've become a bit dull, to the riches that we have in your grace. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to move my stand a little bit so that I get out of my habit of always looking right preach to the left side a little bit. <laughs> um, so 1 Corinthians 1, 4 to 9 is where we are if you turn in your Bibles. And uh, if you don't have your Bibles with you, you can read it on the screen, but that's not an excuse. You should bring your Bibles, um, even if they're electronic. It opens up and it says, I give thanks to you, my God, always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So now, if it was me writing a letter to this church, I'm not sure I would start it the way that Paul starts it. You know, or if I was even writing a letter maybe to another Christian brother or sister of mine who I knew was behaving the way the people in this church were behaving, or even a fellow brother or sister in Christ, and I'm writing them a letter, and they've talked about me the way Corinth has talked about the Apostle Paul. He starts writing this letter to this church, I'm not sure I would write a letter to a church opening up this way. I'm not sure I'd write a letter to another Christian that I knew who was behaving or treating me this way or was slandering me in the way the church was slandering Paul. What an incredible lesson that we get just in that, just in how Paul chooses to begin a letter to this church. And so I want to look at three truths and one lesson out of this. The first truth is is that we're richer than we think. The second one is to remember who made us rich. The third truth is to remember how we were made rich. And the lesson then is to treat each other according to these riches. And so the first point is that we're richer than we think. I'm not sure we often think of the church as being rich. We don't think of this as rich, uh, the, the church as we know it. And Christians, we don't typically think of ourselves as rich. 
people. You know, aren't we supposed to be poor and lowly of heart? You know, aren't the blessed people the ones who are poor in spirit? And yet Paul opens up his letter to the Corinthians. The last church he would think he would say are rich in any way, and he says that they are enriched. And enriched, are they enriched in a way that sort of some of the new, these guys say that they're enriched? Um, you know, you have guys like uh, Creflo Dollar, and uh, they talk about the church and the riches of the church. And, uh, you know, he's got a plan for your life about how, as Christians, you can be healthy and wealthy and prosperous. And so there's a lot of talk out there about the enrichment of the church. And I think he's got a book out that, you know, there's eight ways that uh, you can get the life you want uh, by Dr. Creflo Dollar. And so, you know, you want to be rich as a Christian, then you just follow this guy, you know. Or maybe you could, uh, you know, maybe you could go with Joel Osteen. He's got a book, too. Your best life now, you know, if you don't have the, the, the rich life that you want, you could get your best life now. And if you notice, he does it in seven steps. So he's got an edge on Creflo Dollar. It's only seven steps if you follow Joel Osteen. So, you know, is this the enrichment? You can see these guys on TV. You can read their books. And is this the enrichment that Paul is talking about here? We know that it's not based on the verses that we just read. We know that Paul's not talking about that sort of enrichment in the church. That is a very important sermon for another time. And I'm going to preach it eventually, but I'm not going to preach that one right now. This sermon is about how we're actually enriched. The grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched. And the other reason that we know that this isn't what it's about is if you wanted to to deal with that issue is flip over to 1 Timothy 6 and read what Paul has to say about Christians who desire riches. It's not good stuff. Uh, 6 to 9 would be a good place to go for that. So this richness that Paul is talking about, when we think about the church, we don't think about it enriched the way Creflo Dollar thinks of it enriched. We don't think about it enriched the way Joel Osteen talks about it, the way health, wealth, and prosperity gospel preachers preach how Christians, you know, you're a child of the king and you should have all these riches, or, you know, you know because you're Jesus' child, you shouldn't dress in rags, and, you know, money is good because money's how things get done, and Jesus wants stuff to get done in the world, and so you should have money. It's not that. The riches that Paul talks about is the enrichment through the grace of God. And the first one is in all speech and all knowledge. He says that you you were enriched in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Jesus Christ was confirmed among you. So it's first of all important to notice that Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. This is not one of his letters to Timothy or Titus. Paul is not writing to a single person. He's writing a letter to the church, and he says that the church, they, plural, are enriched in all speech and all knowledge. And he goes on to say that they have every spiritual gift. And so we know he's talking about the church. Is any one person going to say that they have all speech, all teaching, and all knowledge, all wisdom, and they have every spiritual gift? Right? Is anybody going to put up their hand and say, that's me, I'm, I'm the one Paul's talking about. I've got all the wisdom, I've got all the teaching, I've got all the knowledge, I've got all the gifts. No, that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking to a church. He's not talking to Timothy, he's not talking to Titus, he's, he's not talking to a person, he's talking to the church. And he's saying, as a church, you are enriched Not any single person has everything, but as a church, God has poured out onto the church everything that they need. They have all the teaching. They have all the knowledge. They have all the gifts. The fullness of God's grace as it relates to teaching and knowledge is poured out on the church. And the point here is that no Christian is an island of knowledge. No Christian stands on their own without any other interaction with anybody else, having all the truth and all the teaching that they need and all the gifts that they need. The full enrichment of teaching and knowledge is found in the whole body of Christ acting together. 
that Paul is writing to a church. So what do I mean by that? So consider if you've been a part of a church even for a little while. Maybe you've only been a Christian for a few months, maybe a year, maybe less, or maybe your whole life. The teaching, that's the speech, teaching, and the wisdom or the knowledge that God has poured out on you and enriches the church through the whole body, you don't just learn from me. You don't just learn from, say, Pastor George, or you didn't just learn from Brian. It was the whole body, the whole church that's enriched your life here together. You've learned from all kinds of different people. You've sat under the teaching of different people. You've had conversations over coffee with different people. People have taught you different things and shared wisdom with you that you didn't have. People are teaching your kids. You learn things in Sunday school. And then maybe a guy like you know, Ken Tink or somebody else came alongside you as a young man and, and taught you some stuff about life and God or you were having trouble with your marriage, and, and maybe another couple in the church, you, you were in a, in a small group, or maybe just another couple in the church came along and gave you some advice and some wisdom and experience and coaching on your marriage, you know, or you attended Women in the Word, and you sat under the teaching of those women, and you fellowshiped with them, and you learned how to deepen your faith, you know, or you joined a ministry, and you learned how to express your gifts in a new way, right? Paul says that all speech and all knowledge has been enriched. Is in, from the grace of God, the church has been enriched with all speech and all knowledge. They, we learn from everybody. The whole church contains the teaching and the knowledge and the wisdom of God. And once in a while, you might have learned something from me or another pastor too. But it's not here. It's out there. The enrichment and the knowledge and the teaching and the speech and the wisdom and all of that, that every, every way the Corinthian church, Paul says, has been enriched. And it's true of the whole church of God everywhere, in all places, that he's poured out on the church everything that they need. If you've spent any time interacting with the church community, you realize when we think about enrichment, how rich the knowledge and wisdom and experience and coaching and counseling and teaching and instructing and advice and the help that comes from the gathering of the church together. Where would we be as families if we weren't in the church? Where would we get that support, that encouragement, that teaching, that coaching? God's grace to the church is that it's made rich in all speech and all knowledge. Whether it's about marriage or raising children or managing money or engaging in ministry, there is just so many ways in which the richness of God is poured out on the church. Nobody stands alone. Nobody has all the answers and all the wisdom and all the knowledge and can sit back like an armchair quarterback, and say, this is how I do it, or this is, you know, God told me this, and if I was in charge, I'd do it this way. Nobody stands alone. We all do this together. There's no single elder. I don't come up with everything myself. The elders team works together. The ministry teams work together. We as a church work together because the enrichment that God has poured out is poured out on the church. The other thing to consider this idea about speech and knowledge or teaching and knowledge that God has enriched the church with is to consider it within the context of the culture that we're in, because we can get caught up in this too. So the first point is that it enriches all of us, and we all teach each other and learn from each other the wisdom that God's poured out on different people, and we only have it when we're all together. The second point is considering this idea that there's some knowledge outside of the church that we somehow need that's somehow fundamental to our success as a church. That if we just had, you know, maybe this specific philosophy or teaching or marketing tactic or, you know, something that the world could teach us, 
that somehow we'd be better off as a church, or that there's some knowledge or some truth that's been discovered somewhere else that we need. We don't need it. Paul says the church is already equipped with everything. Remember, this is a church in Corinth, you know, 600,000 people, essentially the equivalent of, in its time, of say, something like Toronto, filled with religions, filled with philosophies, filled with philosophers and people teaching. And Paul says, you don't have to listen to all that noise. You don't need anything from out there in the world. You don't need these esoteric knowledges from the East. You don't need these mystical, magical things from, from Africa. You don't need, you know, these philosophies from Athens. All you need is poured out in the church. God has given you the answers to the most difficult questions in the universe. In other words, how do we repair our relationship with God? We've got that answer. We don't need the other answers, primarily. And so we've already been blessed with knowledge in the church that God has poured out through his teachers and specifically through scripture. So we don't need to be looking for some other knowledge outside. That's the second way in which the church is enriched. We also have every gift. It says, so that you are not lacking in any gift. The church in Corinth was really struggling with spiritual gifts, but Paul says you have every gift. The whole church together, again, not any one individual has every gift, but the whole church together has every gift and is enriched by these gifts. We have people that teach, that lead, that show hospitality, that show mercy, that organize, that are helpers, that evangelize, that show care to the hurting, people who give generously. So many spiritual gifts, and we had a sermon on this um, a couple months ago, but there are all those spiritual gifts are out there, and the church is enriched by those gifts. If you don't participate in the church, if you don't find your spiritual gift and use it, if you don't use your teaching or your knowledge the way that Paul described the church being enriched by the knowledge and teaching that's there, then the church is made poor by exactly one you, right? The quantity of one you we're made poor by if you don't participate with your gift because the enrichment of the church is your participation, It's your spiritual gift that's been poured out. That's what Paul says. You are not lacking in any gift. Those gifts reside in the people. And so the participation of the people is what enriches the church. And so be part of that enrichment. And I would ask you to consider the spiritual gifts you've been given in order to enrich the church. How are you enriching the church with your spiritual gift? And I would ask you to consider in your time spent among the fellowship of Christians, tally up how your life has been enriched by the spiritual gifts of others. So you start out at this sermon and you wonder why Paul is saying the church in Corinth, you know, you are enriched, that the church is rich. And you start thinking, how are we rich in all speech, in all knowledge, in all gifts? Just think about your own life, the people that you encountered in the church, the people that gave you help with your marriage or help with your finances or taught you something new about God or showed you how grace worked or offered forgiveness or sang or helped you use your gift or showed you mercy or was generous or all these ways in which you were enriched by the church of God because the church is rich. So the message of Paul in this first paragraph is about the enrichment of our lives by the association with the grace that God poured out on Christians. And that's where Paul's heart goes when he sits to write a letter to a church like Corinth. He says, I thank God for you. You are so enriched. It's a blessing to be among you. It would be a blessing to raise a family in your fellowship. The speech that you have, the teaching, the knowledge, the gifts that God has enriched you with, I thank God for you because it would be such a blessing to be in that environment. 
And then Paul moves on from speech and knowledge and gifts to the, the sort of the present blessings of teaching and wisdom and those gifts in the church. And then Paul moves on to another enrichment. As he keeps going in his paragraph here, he kind of ramps it up and he goes on to the spiritual reality of the priceless enrichment that we have in the promise of God. When we're tallying up all the ways in which we are rich in the church, in Christ, he says we are sustained guiltless. This is amazing. As you wait for the revealing of your Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we can't even begin to count how rich we are here, can we? I mean, that's just, you get your calculator out, and there's just not a little figure. It doesn't matter how many nines you hit. You can fill it up. You can't count how rich you are in this sentence. Above all of the richness that we have just in the fellowship and the community and what God has poured out in grace on the church, the faithfulness of God who will sustain us to the end, guiltless. And that word guiltless in the Hebrew, it means irreprovable, beyond reproof. It means unaccusable. It doesn't mean acquitted. It doesn't mean you were once guilty, but now we've acquitted you. It means you cannot have a charge brought against you. This is the richness that Paul talks about of how the church is enriched by the grace of God. It's a status that we hold in Christ that we cannot even be accused in the day of judgment. Can you put a price on that? Is there a richness greater than that? Zechariah 3 has such a perfect picture of it that many of you will remember. This picture of the richness that we have in being sustained, guiltless beyond, excuse me, accusation. It says in Zechariah 3, 1 to 4, a vision that an angel shows. It says, Then he shows me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand? plucked from the fire. Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. This is the high priest of Israel, the most holy, righteous person that the nation of Israel, the chosen people of God, could come up with. He's their righteous champion. And he's standing there in filthy rags. And the Lord says, I'm going to take those away. I'm going to clothe you in righteousness. Satan, you cannot even charge him with anything. And that's what Paul says here in 1 Corinthians. He says, to this church in Corinth, and we were going to read the rest of the book. We know all the stuff that Corinth is up to. And Paul says, you're guiltless. So pick a Christian friend that you are most critical of. Pick a Christian that you are most unhappy with. Get somebody in mind. If even that person has this eager expectation of guiltlessness at the resurrection of Christ, isn't that something to be thankful for? Even to tell them how thankful you are of that expectation. It's so easy to forget this. Paul doesn't forget it. But it's so easy for us to forget this. That when we're in a mess with people, like we're in a mess, like Corinth was in a mess, we forget that we are all in this together, guiltless before God. And that we can give thanks for one another, that they have that same hope that we have. That they're going to stand before God, whatever muck is going on now, guiltless. 
praise God. And that's what Paul does. Paul is writing to people who slandered him. He is thankful for them in their expectation of their hope in Christ. Thankful that these people will be kept strong till the end. That we have this great gift that we will persevere. That we may look like we have it all together on Sunday morning, but we know that we don't have it all together right through the rest of the week. That we go through seasons where we are just barely managing to look like we have it together on Sunday morning. And sometimes can't even do it then. But the hope that Paul expresses to the church in Corinth, no matter how messy your week is, no matter what season you're in, and how much it looks like you're not going to hold it together, and you're taking people to court, and you're angry, and you're upset about this, or upset about that, and spiritual gifts, and all the stuff that's going on in Corinth, Paul says, you're going to persevere to the end. Paul says, God is going to sustain you, guiltless. You're going to make it. What a way to start a letter, right? What a way to start a letter. So you consider the circumstances here. Paul is about to blame the church for a lot of stuff, right? So it's almost contradictory because Paul is about to write a letter now where he's going to blame them for a whole bunch of stuff. But he starts out before he does that saying that they're guiltless. And that's what pastors deal with a lot of the time, right? Blame and confrontation. We meet people in our office and we try to sort out broken relationships and sinful actions and failures in purity, whether it's physical or ethical. And someone is blaming somebody for something. Somebody's guilty, and they're usually right. Somebody is guilty. Somebody has been foolish or lazy or sinful or hurtful. So there's blame to go around. There's lots of blame, bagfuls of blame to go around. But Paul starts out his letter to this church in Corinth saying, God is going to sustain you guiltless to the end. Now let me tell you what you're doing wrong. (laughs) Let me tell you the foolishness and the sinfulness and the laziness and the and, the, and, the, and where you're missing the mark. But God is going to sustain you blameless to the end. There's lots of guilt to go around, but God is going to sustain us to the end. On that final day, when God could rightly judge and condemn us for everyone who has trusted in Jesus for their salvation, they will shockingly be found blameless. And it's impossible. I can't understand how I can be found blameless without guilt. There's one translation that says, uh, you'll stand before God without any guilty feelings. (laughs) No. (laughs) It's not about guilty feelings. There are worse things in the world than guilty feelings. Right? The world out there will tell you that. The worst thing that you can have is to feel guilty about yourself. You know, to have guilty feelings is such a a bad thing. The, The thing that's worse than guilty feelings is actual guilt right? Not just feeling guilty about what you did, but actually being guilty and being condemned. That's far worse. And that's not a good translation. What Paul says is not that you'll just stand before God without any guilty feelings. In fact, you might stand before God with a lot of guilty feelings, but you'll stand before God guiltless in the final day. And that is the grace of God. That is the foundation stone that sits on the cornerstone of Jesus the enrichment of the church by the grace of God that we should be found guiltless. Finally, the other point is the fellowship of Jesus. He continues and he says, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. We're made rich because we are brought out of fellowship of darkness and into the fellowship of light. We're brought out of the world and into the ecclesia, into the congregation of Jesus. 
We leave our old friends and our old habits and our old ways and our old self, and we come into a new fellowship with Jesus and His friends and His people and His church and His congregation and doing His stuff, and that enriches us. How do you tally up your riches in that regard, in the fellowship of Jesus? I mean, really, you know, Apostle Paul, or are we really all that rich through the church? I'd ask you to think about it again and to consider What are all the things you have in your life that came through fellowship in the church, fellowship in Jesus and his ecclesia, his congregation, right? I mean, I can think about the stuff we just talked about, wisdom, man, I learned a lot, knowledge, friendship, coaching, teaching, mentors, business relationships, my wife, you know, all the things. When I look back on my life and I think of how much has come from the enrichment of fellowship with Jesus and his congregation and his church? How do you tally up the enrichment that is poured out by the grace of God in the form of the church? You spend a little bit of time in a church, a good church, and you realize how much it's poured into your life. Kids programs, support in illness, maybe even financial support, right? You begin enriching others with that grace that has been portioned to you and see how it pays back a hundred times the knowledge that God poured out on you, the teaching that God poured out on you, the wisdom that you have, share it. The spiritual gifts that God has given you, share it. The hope that you have in Christ, share it, and it'll be paid back a hundred times. Jesus says the very same thing. Paul's not just making this up. In Mark 10, you remember this, what Jesus said. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left houses or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands or for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands, with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus told his disciples, he said, there's nobody who's left a relationship, left a friend, a world, even family, even left wealth, left a job, left opportunity for the sake of the gospel, and didn't receive a hundred times in this life. You had to leave a sister or a brother for the gospel, because they don't want to speak to you again, you have a hundred brothers and sisters in the gospel right here. You need a place to stay, you've got a hundred houses you can stay in right here. You need a job, there are places you can work right here. Jesus says, you give up for the gospel, but it's poured back to you by the grace of God and the fellowship of Jesus Christ and all his congregation, all Christians everywhere. You receive a hundred times anything you give up. So Paul says to the church in Corinth, wow, I give thanks for you and how the grace of God has enriched you. We are richer than we think. We don't think about how rich we are. It's like that commercial at Scotiabank, right? (laughs) You're richer than you think. I looked for that video, but I couldn't find it. You see it if you go to the movies, though, every time you go to the movies. But we get more than just free movie tickets on a random marketing night. We get to stand guiltless before God, and we get each other, and we get the spiritual gifts, and we get the wisdom, and we get the knowledge, and we don't have to be an island. We get the fellowship of Jesus and his congregation. Secondly, remember who made us rich. Not just that we're richer than we think in all those ways that we just talked about through the grace of God that he's poured out of his church. Remember who made us rich. It is God who is blessing the Corinthians and blessing us. The Corinthian church is not made rich through Paul and his wisdom. He doesn't write them and say, look, I taught you all this stuff. Man, I was there. The apostle Paul 
you're planted, best church planner ever, you know, and think of all the stuff I taught you. You were enriched by me. He says, no, you were enriched by the grace of God. In fact, later in Corinthians, he says the exact opposite. I was there, I was afraid, and I didn't have any great knowledge or wisdom, and I was, you know, shaky in my speaking, and I was frail, and I came to you in weakness and humility. So he's not saying you're rich because of me. He's saying you're rich because of God. It's God who made you rich. It's God who called me as an apostle. I wouldn't be anywhere except that God called me. And he says that the saints that are in Corinth are called to be saints. God called us. God gave us Jesus. He created the plan for his life and his sacrifice. It's God who honored the promise to save those who trusted in Jesus. It's God who became our father, drawing us into his family. It's God who called Paul and sent Paul to Corinth. It's God who called the people to be Christians and to be in the church at Corinth. God planned it all. God poured out the grace and the peace and the knowledge and the spiritual gifts. And Paul says, remember who made you rich. It was God that did all this. God called me. He called you. He sent Jesus. He honors the promise. It's all from God. Paul thanks God because there's nothing happening in Corinth that's not from God. And there's nothing happening at Lakeside that's not from God. We give thanks to God because nothing happens here because of us. It happens because of the grace of God. And that's why Paul can give thanks for the church at Corinth because anything that is happening at Corinth is happening because of the grace of God. So don't forget who is enriching us. God is faithful to extend grace. It's interesting because it says God is faithful, but in the Greek, Greek word order matters, and it's actually faithful is God, right? You say God is faithful, yeah, it sounds kind of normal, right? But you come up to somebody and you say faithful is God. That's the emphasis. Faithful is God. That's what Paul is saying. Faithful is God who has enriched you. It's the faithfulness of God that has made us rich. And then thirdly, remember how we are made rich. These are not riches to be taken for granted and thought little of. Some riches from God, some of the riches that we experience, we experience from God's creation. Some of the riches that we have come from the scriptures and from the apostles. Some of the riches we have come from each other and come from his, like history and Christians who have you know, passed down teaching and, and wise saints who we learn from. But primarily, these riches have come by the perfect life and the substitutionary death and the promised resurrection of Jesus, the Messiah. That's what Paul says there. He says that we stand guiltless and we look forward in hope to his coming, the coming of Jesus. Because what, how we were made rich was through Jesus. How we were made rich was through this cornerstone. How we were made rich was through his perfect life. We were made rich by his sacrifice. We were made rich by his resurrection and God's promise that because of the resurrection, because of the sacrifice of Jesus, he would honor his promise that we would stand guiltless before him. All our sins would be taken care of. And so we can't take these riches for granted. We can't take these riches lightly because we remember how we acquired them. When riches are acquired at this cost, you don't take them lightly. So we don't take the wisdom that we have. We don't take the knowledge that we have. We don't take the speech that we have, the teaching. We don't take the gifts that we have. We don't take the grace of God and the fellowship that we have in the community, in the congregation of Jesus lightly. Because all of these gifts that I've been talking about for 20 minutes, all of this stuff has come through Jesus and his blood, his death, his sacrifice. Christ has enriched the church in every way. Outside of Christ, we're judged, we're condemned, we're impoverished. Only in Christ are we rich. So how has God enriched us? 
through the blood and sacrifice of his own son. In what other name could we have any other hope? What other name could any person in history save us? Who else in history could enrich our church here today other than Jesus? Can you think of anybody? Steve Jobs, is he going to enrich you today? (laughs) John Lennon, is he going to enrich you today? Right? King whoever, is he going to enrich you today? Only Jesus can enrich you. The riches we have today are only through Jesus. And in what other name could we have any hope? That's what Peter said when the disciples, Jesus got done his teaching, and people said, well, these are hard sayings, and they all started to disperse. People who came to hear his teaching, they all started to leave, and Jesus looked up, and the disciples and Peter were still there, and he said to them, he said, are are you guys going to go too? And Peter says, where else would we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. It's Jesus who preserves us. It's Jesus who humbled himself for us, emptied himself. And so there's no comfort in the idea of God apart from Jesus. The idea of God is a scary idea apart from Jesus. And the relationship that's possible through him. God is only a comforting thought because we know him through Jesus. And so therefore, what is, those are the three truths that we're enriched in all these ways. That, that there's just this reality that Paul is outlining in the very first paragraph to this letter in Corinth, a church that everybody would love to hate, that has a million things to be blamed for. And Paul says, look, you have all knowledge, you have all speech, you have all wisdom, you have all gifts, and you are going to be held guiltless and and stand guiltless at the end and sustained guiltless at the end. And I give thanks for you. So out of those truths then, what are we to do? Treat each other according to those riches. Help other Christians remember them. Paul starts his letter encouraging them, reminding them about the blessing of God's grace in their lives, and only after that to then help them work out the implications of those blessings. The grace of God is like a foundation stone in the church of Corinth or the church in Lakeside or in your Christian life. The grace of God stands on the cornerstone of Jesus. And we need to help other Christians remember them. That's what Paul is doing. That's how he opens up his letter. He says, I want to remind you, before I get into all this other stuff, I would remind you about this reality. And the point here is to help especially the most unlikely Christians to remember these blessings. Help the Christians who we are most frustrated with or most disappointed in. That's the deal with Paul and Corinth, right? (laughs) This is not a church that he's particularly happy with. He's frustrated with them. He might even be a little bit disappointed in them. But it's the Christians that we, the most unlikely Christians that we have to remind of these truths, right? Paul was an unlikely Christian. Corinth was filled with unlikely Christians, right? Former atheists, prostitutes, philosophers, violent people, impure people, greedy people, stuck-up people, angry people, people that still need correction, people like us still falling into their old sin. Those are the people that Paul wanted to remind about the riches that they have in Christ. And Paul thanks God for them. He sees the evidence of God's work in them and remembers God's grace in their life. And he tells them he remembers and he thanks God for them. If you can't see the evidence of God's grace in somebody's life, then where is the grace in yours? If you can't see other Christians as God's creation, called to Him, saved by grace, then there's something obstructing your eye and my eye. If I can't look at another Christian brother, no matter how much he's hurt me, and I've had the church hurt me, I've had Christians hurt me, but when I look at them, 
If I can't see them as God's creation, if I can't see them as enriched by the grace of God, then there's something wrong with my eye, and I've got to get something out of my eye before I can start telling them what's in their eye. So that's the lesson. We are richer than we think in so many ways. And that we need to interact with each other in the knowledge of that richness. Pour out wisdom on each other. Pour out teaching on each other. Pour out spiritual gifts. Get engaged. If you're not doing it, we're poorer by exactly one you. And when we're dealing with each other, be like Paul. When we're dealing with those Christians we have in mind that we are not the most happy with right now, start our conversation with them saying, I thank God for you and the hope that you have in Christ because it's the same hope I have. Let's pray. Father God, we give you thanks for your word. I just pray that we could, man, get even 10%, 5% out of what Paul has taught here in the first paragraph. Father, I just thank you that you have enriched us. Thank you that we have everything that we need, that we don't have to look elsewhere, that we don't have to look to the world. We have it all here. You've poured it out on your church in Lakeside. I love that. Father, help us to recognize it. Give us your wisdom. Give us your teaching. Give us your gifts. Let us use them and express them to each other. Remind us every day of how much richness is in our lives because of the interaction with this congregation right here and other Christians. Our marriages, our families, our kids, the counseling, the mentoring, the teaching, the fellowship over coffee, the visits in hospitals. Father, your plan was not to leave us impoverished, but to leave us rich. And not rich with BMWs and jets rich with the things that are real riches. And most of all, the life and death and resurrection of your Son, that if we trust in Jesus alone, we're guiltless before you. We're part of a family that goes on for eternity like this. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.